BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, for a few days in late 2015, global outrage coursed at the haunting photo of Alan Kurdi, the lifeless Syrian toddler found washed ashore on a Turkish beach. The boat carrying him and other migrants sank on its way to Greece. Omar al-Akkad's new novel, What Strange Paradise, imagines an alternative narrative. A young migrant child survives a shipwreck and tries to forge his way to safety. Al-Akkad says he wrote the novel in part to counter what he calls the privilege of instantaneous forgetting. He joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. What Strange Paradise, the title of a new novel by Omar al-Akkad, is about a nine-year-old Syrian boy named Amir, who is the sole survivor of a capsized boat that carried migrants from Egypt to an island in Greece. When men in white containment suits descend on the beach, Amir runs. A 15-year-old girl named Vana becomes his protector, and together they try to get him to safety. Writer Omar al-Akkad is also a journalist who has covered the war in Afghanistan and the Arab Spring. Omar, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, readers will likely think, as I did, that uh, you drew your inspiration for this book from that wrenching photo of Alan Kurdi, the two-year-old who drowned in 2015, along with many other refugees fleeing the Syrian civil war and trying to get to Greece. But it sounds like you were thinking of the story of Amir well before that. Is that right? What was your inspiration? Um, the earliest memory I have of um, of sort of thinking about the things that eventually congealed into what this book what this book is um, was in 2012. I was back in Cairo. Uh, I was born in Egypt. My family's all from Egypt. But I was back there as a journalist. I was covering um, the Arab Spring, the aftermath of the Arab Spring. And I was driving around with an old high school friend of mine who was complaining about rent. You know, the rent is too high. The rent is too high. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I asked him at one point, I said, well, you know, what's the rent for an apartment in your building, for example? And he said, "Um, well, do you mean the locals price or do you mean the Syrians price? Uh, And I said, well, what's the Syrians price? Uh, And he said, well, we've had these people coming into the country and they've got no choice. So you can charge them three times as much. What are they going to do? Go somewhere else? Um, and it quickly became apparent that this wasn't just an, uh, an apartment-specific thing, that this happened when you went down the street to buy fruits and vegetables from the stall. 
Um, you know, and you think about it in the context of all of these Arab leaders at the time talking about our Syrian brothers and sisters, our Syrian brothers and sisters, and it, it was all nonsense. At the end of the day, there was a population that could be exploited, and so it was going to be exploited. Um, and that was the, the, the closest thing I have, I think, to, to a sort of genesis moment when I started thinking about the things that eventually led me to, to this book. Yes, the the exploitation, as you say, the gouging of people who are already really in a desperate situation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Um, I think it's a universal thing. It's it's unfortunate, <laughs> very unfortunately, it's a universal thing. Well, you've also said that one of the things that drove you to write this novel was to break down the privilege of instantaneous forgetting, and I'm wondering if you could explain what you mean by that as well. So a little while after I was I was in Cairo working um, working on those stories, um, I was reading the story of a migrant shipwreck uh, across the Mediterranean, mm. and the details of the story were about as horrific as as you would expect. Um, but one of the things that stuck out in in the days that followed was how this particular story, like so many stories, and like that photo you mentioned of Alan Curdy, it inspired so much outrage for about twenty four hours. Uh, and then everyone moved on to the next thing that we were all supposed to be outraged about. Um, and I don't, I don't want to criticize people who do this. I understand it as a kind of psychological self-defense mechanism. Um, we're coming off four, four years of Donald Trump, where I genuinely can't tell you what the scandal of the day was this time last year. Um, you know, we, I understand that. Um, but Novels in particular, I think, are about the dwelling. Um, they're about not looking away. And so I wanted to write against this privilege of, of being able, particularly in this part of the world, to be sufficiently outraged about an injustice one day and then move on to be sufficiently outraged about the next day's injustice and just continue like this indefinitely. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to dwell. And so that's, I think, the mission statement of this book from from my point of view, at least. Could you read a little bit from your book? Could you read the very beginning of it for us? Absolutely. Um, these, are, these are just the first couple of pages. The child lies on the shore. All around him, the beach is littered with the wreckage of the boat and the wreckage of its passengers. Shards of decking, knapsacks cleaved and gutted, bodies frozen in unnatural contortion. Dispossessed of nightfall's temporary burial, the dead ferment indecency. There's too much of spring in the day, too much light. Face down with his arms outstretched, the child appears from a distance as though playing at flight. And so too in the bodies that surround him, though distended with seawater and hardening, there flicker the remnants of some silent levitation, a severance from the laws of being. The sea is tranquil now, the storm is past. The island, despite the debris, is calm. A pair of plump, orange-necked birds, stragglers from a northbound flock, take rest on the lamppost from which hangs one end of a police cordon. In the breaks between the wailing of the sirens and the murmur of the onlookers, they can be heard singing. The species is not unique to the island, nor the island to the species. But the birds, when they stop here, change the pitch of their songs. The call is an octave higher, a sharp throat-scraping thing. In time, a crowd gathers near the site of the shipwreck, 
tourists and locals alike, people watch. The eldest of them, an arthritic fisherman driven in recent years by plummeting cherub fish stalks to kitchen work at a nearby resort, says that it's never been like this before on the island. Other locals nod because even though the history of this place is that of violent endings, of galleys flipped over the axis of their oars and fishing skiffs tangled in their own netting, and once during the war, an empty Higginslander sheared to ribbons by shrapnel, the old man is still in his own way right. These are foreign dead. No one can remember exactly when they first started washing up along the eastern coast, but in the last year it has happened with such frequency that many of the nations on whose tourists the island's economy depends have issued travel advisories. The hotels and resorts in turn have offered discounts. Between them, the Coast Guard and the morgue keep a partial count of the dead, and as of this morning, it stands at 1,026, but this number is as much an abstraction as the dead themselves are to the people who live here, to whom all the shipwrecks of the previous year are a single shipwreck, all the bodies a single body. That's my guest, Omar el Akkad reading from his new novel, What Strange Paradise. Hearing you read about how the boy, um, his arms outstretched, playing at flight, the boy Amir, who ultimately does wake up in your story, um, reminds me of what you said about how this book is a fable, an inverted version, actually, of Peter Pan. Why, why Peter Pan as a foundational myth for this? I think I, I became obsessed with fairy tales and fables in large part because I think they're simultaneously some of our most camouflaged and honest conversations about death. Um, you know, they, they come in the guise of, of adventure and playfulness, uh, but so many of them are, are very much concerned with mortality. Um, when we talk about Peter Pan today, we usually talk about something like Peter Pan syndrome, where we're thinking of the man who refuses to stop acting like a child. Mm. Um, but the origins of the story are the exact opposite. Uh, J.M. Barry, the playwright who, who wrote Peter Pan, his older brother died as a young child. He died in a, in a skating accident and it crushed the family. His mother never recovered. But one of the ways that his mother found as a sort of coping mechanism was to tell herself, well, at least he never got to grow old. And so the origins of Peter Pan as an idea of this child who would never grow old are rooted in, in very much in a conversation about mortality and about death. And so I wanted to take what in the last hundred years has become this sort of comforting fairy tale that Westerners tell their kids, and I wanted to use it for a different purpose that I think, I may be completely wrong, but I think is, is more closely rooted to the place that this fable originally came from. And is Vana, the 15-year-old girl who helps Amir, who, who protects Amir, is she Wendy? She certainly is to me. Um, <laughs> uh, one, one of the things about this novel is that, you know, I talk about it as, as a sort of repurposed Peter Pan, um, but I think unless the reader has a very very detailed understanding of Peter Pan and how that story came about. It doesn't sort of jump off the page. Yes, um, I, I have to say, I probably miss those references myself. It has been a long time since I've read Peter Pan, if ever, but 
Yeah. Oh no, this, I mean, this certainly isn't because I'm some kind of, you know, misunderstood literary genius or something. These <laughs> things are buried in there. Um, and it's <laughs> certainly not the expectation on the reader by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I mean, to give you an idea of how, how buried, um, so Vanna, so Wendy, apparently in my research for Peter Pan, apparently Wendy was not a very commonly used name before mm. Peter Pan came along. And then after the story, it became much more popular. But um, this might be entirely apocryphal, but apparently the legend is that when J.M. Barry was a child, one of his childhood friends uh, wanted to call him friend, but couldn't pronounce the R. And so kept calling him Fwendy. And I guess that's where Wendy comes from as a, as a name origin. Oh, wow. um, and so Vanna in the book is half Swedish. Van is a Swedish word for friend. This is the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I do not expect any reader to know that off the top of their heads. It's just the, the stuff you get to bury there for your, for your own entertainment, I suppose. Yes, that's so interesting. There's also this quality towards the end where you wonder if what you have read in this whole story of Amir and Vanna and their attempt to get him to safety, whether or not it is real, which I guess in some ways makes perfect sense with a fable. Huh? Yeah, I, I had a strange, um, when, when I first wrote this, I got to about draft four of the manuscript and then I finally decided to show it to someone. And um, the previous novel I'd written a few years ago, I wrote this book called American War. Yes. And it's very much a sort of kitchen sink book. It's, it's full of things. <laughs> it's full of fake historical documents and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so it was interpreted by readers in a very different way than, than how I intended it. And I didn't think the same thing would happen with What Strange Paradise, which is a much shorter, much quieter book. Um, but the first four people who, who read it had four entirely different interpretations of what was happening. Hmm. Um, and that threw me off a bit, but I think it's it's the nature of writing a fantasy as you get that kind of different interpretations. Yes. Well, talking with Omar Al-Akhad, his new novel is What Strange Paradise, his first novel was American War, as he just said. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. If you have questions or thoughts you want to share with Omar, please do so. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or maybe it's making you think about or assess how Western nations have responded so far to the migration crisis. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with writer Omar el Akkad, whose new novel is What Strange Paradise. He's also a journalist and former foreign correspondent who covered the Arab Spring and the war in Afghanistan. And if you want to join the conversation, you are welcome to do so by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or you can post your thoughts or questions for Omar on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Before the break, we were talking about just how much your book is is fantasy and fable, but there are just these moments, um, Omar Al-Akkad, where I couldn't help but hear the journalist, or maybe I was, but there there's such realism in your descriptions of the passengers, for example, on Amir's boat, uh, just even the description of the, the, the boat itself and, you know, how there was a lantern fashion from flashlight and these fake life jackets that were actually made from foam, which fills with water. So it actually does not save your life. In fact, it probably becomes an instrument of death. And, and just the way you describe so many small details about the passengers and so on. I did wonder, have you seen boats like this or, or interviewed migrants? Um, how did you construct these? 
I think the the, the book, um, much like American War, is this sort of the the construction of it is this mashup of um, personal experience. So so part of the book takes place in in Egypt, and and a lot of that part right. is based on my childhood there. Um, uh, a lot of the interactions I had as a child kind of migrate into the into the novel, uh, in 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 the form of the the interaction between the two central characters, the two children in the book, um, and then there's sort of the things I saw while working as a journalist, um, the little details that again end up end up working their way there. A lot of the sort of residual emotional experience, where you 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 witness something, you experience something, but um, at least I am not a journalist of, of the caliber. I'm not talented enough to be able to make sense of that experience in the realm of journalism. And so it ends up living in my head until I can get it out in fiction. Um, and then there's research, there's reading up on all the work that's, that's been done on this. So, so, you know, those details about um, the life jackets filled with foam, that's not something I made up. Um, yeah, I was going to ask. Uh, you know, it's, 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 one of the issues you have when you get into a situation like this is that you're taught over and over again in creative writing not to be too heavy-handed, and you're trying not to do that, but but life is heavy-handed. The, the, the things that life is doing, the things that are happening in the real world feel overt. It feels like reality is intruding on the fictional, and you try to make sense of that. And I, I don't know if I did properly, but certainly that was something I was contending with when I was putting the book together. Well, you also show the reality that we operate on the fictional. And what I mean by that is the migrants themselves have such idealized notions of the West in your book as a place of refuge. And it is really quite striking that really the belief that if you can go and be able to communicate clearly your need as a, for example, you have a pregnant woman on the boat who's rehearsing how to let people know that she is pregnant and that she needs help and that the baby is born in a certain day and so on, that you will be cared for, that you will receive, I guess, refuge, as I, as I said earlier. Could you talk a little bit about that depiction, first of all, um, and what truths you feel like need to be told about how the West receives and treats migrants? I think to me anyway, and, and again, my interpretation is now, now that the book is published, my interpretation is by far the least important one. Um, but in <laughs> my mind, um, it was, uh, the book is very much, it takes place at the collision of two fantasies, two warring fantasies. The first is very popular in the part of the world where I came from, which is this fantasy that if we can just make it to the West, everything will be okay. Um, and you know, that's partially true. Some things will be okay. Um, I, I, you know, if I criticize the government back home in Egypt, uh, there's a good chance I end up in a secret prison. I don't have that fear here, mm. but not everything is going to be okay. The West is not this nirvana that it's often made out to be. So that's sort of one fantasy headed in one direction, colliding with the fantasy headed in the other direction, which is fairly common in this part of the world, which is this idea that, oh, all those people coming from over there are barbarians at the gate. And we need to do whatever we can to stop them, including burning the whole place down if we have to, just so they don't get their hands on it. And so the book takes place at the collision of these two fantasies, and reality is subservient to both. Throughout, throughout the length of this book, what things actually are 
is completely subservient to what people believe them to be. Um, and so I think that's another reason that I gravitated to the sort of fable structure or, or the fairy tale structure. Um, I think that's another context where the fantasy supersedes the reality, which when applied to real life is a, is a very dangerous thing, particularly when you're talking about human beings who have no recourse, they, they have nothing um, and they are asking for shelter and how we respond to that, um, I think is, is the sort of defining question of our time. Let me go to a caller. Michelle in San Francisco, join us. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Um, thank you for this program. It's awesome. And um, I was curious when um, the Peter Pan story became like fascinating or or obsessive or I don't I don't want to use that negatively, but when you really became aware of it and decided it was. Um, uh, I don't know, that you wanted to research it so heavily. And also, if you ever think that you're not talented enough, and if so, how you keep writing in spite of that. <laughs> Michelle, thanks. Thank you so much for your questions. Uh, to answer the first one, I was, um, um, I was reading a, um, a sort of semi-biography of J.M. Barry. It's this book called The Lost Boys, which is part the story of J.M. Barry's life, but also the story of how Peter Pan came to be written. Um, and I was, I was taken with two things. The first is just how profoundly lonely J.M. Barry was through most of his life. And this is, you know, at the turn of the previous century, he was maybe the most famous playwright in the world. He had so much celebrity, so much success, and he was this deeply lonely man. Um, and he didn't really have a family of his own, and he sort of latched on to a friend's family and, and her five boys. Uh, he became this mentor to them, this, this very protective guardian of them. And he based Peter Pan on an amalgam of their personalities. Um, and one of these boys, his name was Peter. Because his name was Peter, the media for the rest of his life, anything he would do, there would be stories saying, you know, Peter Pan boy does this, that sort of thing. And wow. it, it, it ruined his life. He ended up killing himself, actually. Um, I, was, I was taken by the amount of sadness that we generally think of wrapped up in a very joyful, very adventurous tale. So that's sort of what, what struck me about that. Um, and then to answer your second question, that voice never goes away. Um, <laughs> I've given up on, on it one day, just leaving. Um, when I was writing my first novel, I, I, I had no book deal, I had no publisher, uh, I, I had no expectation it would ever see the light of day. Uh, and in fact, I'd written three novels before American War that I didn't think was were any good. So I never showed them to anybody and they still just sit on the hard drive. Um, and I thought I would do the same with American War. And the whole time I'm writing it, there's a voice in my head that says, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Um, and, and you learn the, the central coping mechanism, which is just to get up every day and say, okay, fine, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, and then American War comes out, it does much, much better than I expected at the very least. And I thought that that voice would now not have a leg to stand on. And instead it just changed to, you're a one hit wonder, you'll never do this again, you know, find something else to do. So I've, I've become accustomed to the, the immortality of that particular voice in my head. And you have to remind yourself that regardless of how good or bad you are at this, um, that you keep coming back to it, that I keep coming back to the keyboard um, means something. And I sort of try to hold on to that when when that voice becomes very um, overbearing. 
Well, Michelle, thank you for those questions and thank you for your reply, Omar al We're talking with Omar about his new novel, What Strange Paradise, and you too can join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org. There's this other theme in, in your book that that I was struck by, and that was when you were describing these moments of how people speak. So, for example, there's a moment in the book where the mother is watching soap operas and practicing flattening her accent so that she can be more accepted to wherever it is that she ends up needing to go. Um, you describe one of the, the doomed passengers on the boat that Amir is on, the Calypso, as speaking in this distorted Oxford English accent um, that has bound so much of the previously colonized world from North America to India. And I I'm wondering, so much of those experience really resonated with me as an immigrant experience. Um, and I was wondering how much your immigrant experience informed your depiction of the efforts to sound more sound in ways that would be more accepting to Westerners or or even the ideas that you had about the West. Um, and so what what you thought about it, Omar Alakad, as as um, I think you were a teenager by the time that you went to to Canada yeah. and, and what you did to be more accepted there. Yeah, thank you for that. That's, um, I mean, that part you referenced in the book, I think, is is the part where my experience as an immigrant is most is most influential. I think, um, and no one's brought that up before. Um, that's that's really fascinating. I was um, a long time ago. I was I was doing a story on climate change in southern Louisiana, and, and I was interviewing this person who lives in the southern end of the state about about his home, which was going to be underwater um, soon. And after we get done the interview, we're just sitting around chatting afterwards. And at one point he asked me this question, which I think is going to be familiar to any immigrant listening to this. He asked me, where are you from? And the answer that I give him is sufficient is not sufficiently satisfactory because he says, no, no, where, where are you really from? Mm. And so we do that little song and dance where we yeah. move backwards in time, you know, and finally we get to Egypt where I was born. And I tell him, well, you know, I was born in Cairo and, uh, and he nods and he says, um, yeah, you know, I could hear the Egyptian in your accent. And I thought, no, you can't. Like, I've been working on this for a while. I've been working on this since I was five. You can't hear the Egyptian in my accent. Um, I have a lot of relatives, uh, my parents, uh, all my extended relatives whose names are similar to mine, uh, whose skin color, ethnicity, religion, place of birth are all similar to mine. And I can't help but think that the reason, the central reason I don't have too much trouble at TSA when I go through the airport, and they do, is because I sound the way I do. Mm. Because from a very young age, my parents who, who grew up in, in a part of the world that was colonized by the British thought of English as the winner's language. And so if their kid was going to have a shot, they were going to send them to British schools, they were going to send them to American schools because he was going to learn the winner's language. And to a certain extent, I mean, it worked out as you'd expect. I write books in English now. I sound the way I do, you know, it, it but I've also lost so much of my heritage. My Arabic is horrible. Uh, there's a huge negative space culturally for me that I have to contend with. Um, but that's what happens when you come from a part of the world that, um, you know, colonialism meets you long before you ever meet colonialism. I didn't know this was happening um, when I was a kid. I, it just... 
It's one of the few things about you that you can change so as to fit in in a part of the world where you feel you otherwise might be rejected. And I think that's kind of a universal impulse. Yes, that's, that's a really great way of describing it. Um, you know, really quickly, I, I did come across an interview where I think you said that you construct dialogue or that you were writing this book in your head in Arabic, but then translating it onto the page in English. How, how did you do that? Yeah, so, so the book uh, is told in alternating chapters, after and before, and after yeah. is everything that happens once this child shows up in the island, and before is everything that led to him being on the island. And most of the before chapters take place on this migrant boat where uh, most of the characters are Arabs. And so all of that dialogue was happening in Arabic in my head because I was using a dialogue that, um, mm. you know, things I remembered from people I grew up with and then translating it into English. And I had to make a decision early on about the opportunity cost of that, which is the clunkiness of it. If I had written it straight in English and my, you know, if I'd not gone through that process, I think the dialogue would flow a lot more smoothly, but it was important for me to, to say these things in my head the way the way that I thought they would be said and then do the translation and, and take the hit on on how jarring the dialogue is as a result. You decided to make Egypt the departure point for this book. Is um, is that part of a well-known migrant route, Alexandria, where I know that's where you you were familiar and you talked about that earlier in our in our conversation and that's how you located some of this there. But I was just curious. It's certainly not the most common one, uh, not by a long stretch. Uh, there were two reasons that I that I had this particular boat take off from from Alexandria. One is that I was familiar with the terrain, and there were things I wanted to say about that place. Um, but the other has to do with one of the many many um, works from which What Strange Paradise uh, steals, uh, in addition to to Peter Pan and an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and the mm. Odyssey and Paradise Lost. Uh, it also steals from the Book of Nicodemus, which is part of the Apocrypha. There's a sort of biblical um, streak that runs through this book. And because it's told in alternating uh, chapters that involve a miraculous rebirth uh, on one side, I wanted to have an exodus from Egypt on the other side, um, which again is, is purely a um, self-obsessed author thing to do with the construction of your book. But that, those were the two sort of central reasons why I, why I had the boat take off from Egypt. Well, Steve asks, given how things have unfolded in Syria and Egypt and elsewhere, I wonder if Omar feels that the WikiLeaks releases that led to the Arab Spring were truly positive for the people of those countries. It's a really interesting question. I was in Egypt just before the Arab Spring. Um, my father died suddenly in, in late 2010. Hmm. And he had marinated in Egypt. He loved that country. I left when I was five. So my relationship is by blood, but but I don't have that life experience. Um, and he always wanted to be buried with, you know, next to his father and his sisters in the El Akkad mausoleum and the city of the dead um, in Cairo. So we, we go back um, for that. And it was just before the Arab Spring. And then watching it unfold as I'm sort of mourning my father, who was my central connection to this place, it was, I think, is probably going to be the last time that I allowed myself to believe. Um, you know, one of the things that you're told in places like Egypt over and over and over again by people who benefit from the system as it is, who 
by people who benefit from the authoritarian governments that have ruled Egypt for essentially my entire life is that, oh, these people aren't ready for democracy, you know, in time, in time. And of course, it'll never come because the system is so entrenched. But for a moment there, you allowed yourself to believe. And then you watch as the whole thing falls apart. Um, what happened in these places, at least in my opinion, and certainly it's not the most valid one by any stretch of the imagination, what happened was, was a kind of brush fire. You had this immense incandescent thing that happened and you overthrew the, the figurehead, the, the person who ran the government, you know, it was, yes. but the roots survived. Everything below the surface survived. A revolution isn't a healthcare policy. A revolution isn't a, a new education system. It's, it's a very violent short-term fire. And once that fire burns out, you realize that the roots are untouched. Um, and it was a very heartbreaking thing to watch. I mean, people died for this. People died for this revolution. And to watch all of that go back to square one, I think was a difficult thing. Um, and I don't know what happens from here. And I hope it doesn't take another 40 years before we get something better than just another military government. Um, we're coming up on a break, but I can't help but wonder if if the fact that the roots survive, for example, informs your portrayal of indifference in this novel. Um, we'll have more after the break with Omar El Akkad. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Omar Al-Akkad's new novel is What Strange Paradise, and we're talking about that today. His first novel was American War. He's also a journalist and former foreign, cor former foreign correspondent who covered the Arab Spring and the war in Afghanistan. And if you want to join the conversation or have questions or reactions to what Omar Al-Akkad is saying, you can call us at 866-733-6786, email us forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. This listener writes, I'm fascinated by the threads of life and fantasy this author is weaving. The backstory of Peter Pan touched me as I have lost a child. Omar's humble grace and compassion shine through in this interview, as I am sure they do in this book. I am looking forward to reading it. Now let me go to caller Max in San Francisco. Hi, Max. Hello, good morning to you, and Omar, congratulations on your book. You have done fantastic. And I have to tell you that not only you don't have any accent, your English is probably one of the most eloquent English I've heard. My question goes not to your novel, but to your experience as a war correspondent and journalist. With what's happening in Afghanistan, mm. there will be clearly, undoubtedly, a new wave of immigrants and refugees that will be created. And I don't think Turkey or the region can handle it. What do you think? Was it a mistake for U.S. to pull out? That's a question that is on everyone's mind. Or should that region just be consumed by the wave of immigrants and refugees mm -hmm. one after the other? And, and congratulations again and best wishes. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Max. Such excellent points and, and questions, Omar al uh, Thank you very much, Max. That was, that was very kind, and thank you for your question. <clears throat> I, um, the first time I, I went, to, and I, I want to be clear that I, you know, I, I'm a reporter who covered war. Um, war correspondent to me is somebody who spends a good portion of their life doing this. Um, <laughs> And I, 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 I was able to experience these, but I'm, I'm far from a war correspondent. I, um, 
the first time I went to Afghanistan, I, I all I wanted to do when I when I joined my newspaper was be a war correspondent. I was young. I was in my early 20s. I'd read way too much Hemingway, and I had this um, ridiculous notion of, you know, the war correspondent as this swashbuckling hero. And I finally, my my foreign editor um, at my old paper relents, and he lets me go there on an eight-week stint. And I arrive in Kandahar, and at the time, Kandahar Airfield was um, a small city, basically. I think it was 25,000 people were stationed there. It was this sea of shipping containers. Um repurposed as, as sort of offices. And there was a Burger King there, you know, at one point the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders showed up. It was a very surreal place to, to be. Anyway, um, at one point I leave the base and I'm, I'm going into Kandahar city and I'm going with the fixer. Uh, when journalists talk about fixers, that's what they mean is the locals who do all the real work uh, for none of the pay and none of, well, very little of the pay and, and none of the glory. Um, yes. And so the fixer actually he used to be a doctor um, and made more money as a fixer for Western journalists. Um, and he lived in Kandahar City. So he comes in and, and gets me and um, we're leaving the base and, and the base is protected by an inner wire and an outer wire. The inner wire protects the base proper and the outer wire is right on the highway. The inner wire is defended by NATO troops who have state-of-the-art equipment, state-of-the-art training. The outer wire, which is where all the attacks happen, is defended by Afghan soldiers, uh, almost universally 18-year-olds, very little training, and usually the weapons that the Soviets left behind 30 years earlier. And so my first experience of, of the situation that I had thought of in these very romantic terms was one of a hierarchy of whose lives were dispensable. It was very clear that this base was designed such that if anybody got killed, it was going to be those folks. It was going to be the locals whose lives were more dispensable. And this became endemic to every experience I had while covering the war in this place. And so you asked me if it was a mistake to pull out. All of this was a mistake. And the reason that mistake A, happened, and B, no one will ever be held accountable for, is precisely because the view of the policymakers in this part of the world is that all those lives on the other side of the planet are completely dispensable. And if you're operating from that point of view, I don't care how good your plan is. It doesn't matter to me. Um, that's, you know, so it's, a, it's an unsatisfying answer and I apologize for that, but, but it's hard for me to talk about mistakes in the context of a policy that doesn't care about the lives of the people it purports to care about. And let's talk now about the impact of that, right? The results, the UN's refugee agency estimates that, you know, since the beginning of the year, 400,000 Afghans have been internally displaced within the country. I mean, you're, you're talking about displacement. We're talking about um, the potential impact that we'll see on the migrant crisis that already exists. I, I'm wondering if you do have some insights that you want to share about what will happen to those displaced, given how much you've looked at it from a writer's perspective. My sense is, again, you know, in addition to, to the onslaught of refugees, which I think, you know, we, currently we have, um, I mean, the refugee crisis is, is overwhelmingly the majority of these human beings are coming from, from a select few places on earth, uh, Afghanistan, Syria, Venezuela, among them. Um, and it, 
it again boils down to, <clears throat> excuse me, it boils down to this notion of if you fundamentally think of these people as dispensable, the policy you, you create around that is going to treat them as such. Um, so for example, you had during the, the, the height of the sort of attention that was paid to this, the migrant crisis across the Mediterranean, it was always talked about in the context of, oh, Europe is facing a migrant crisis. No, Europe wasn't facing a migrant crisis. You, Europe was facing a few hundred or thousand people on boats. Uh, Lebanon was facing a migrant crisis. Um, it was taking in orders of magnitude more human beings with an economy that could not handle that. Um, and so you're, I think you're going to see that. You're going to see countries in which these people are not thought of as, as exotic foreigners are going to bear the brunt of, of this refugee crisis. Do you think our complicity, you mentioned it with regard to the fighting, but our complicity with regard, for example, to climate change might might turn that lens a little bit on us and make us feel a bit more of a moral obligation. I, I ask this because I, I came across the piece that you recently wrote for Globe and Mail about the compounding effects of climate change and natural disaster on global migration. And you point out in that piece that more than 82 million people were displaced by conflict in 2020, and that you say that we need to think about that figure not as the terminus of some horrible trend, to quote you, but the beginning. And And I just wonder about what are we facing with the the dual impact of climate change in terms of migration and displacement? And again, going back to my earlier point, do you think our complicity as the West in the climate crisis will make us feel more obligated to do the right thing here? And I don't even know if obligated is the right word, but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, it's a difficult thing to phrase, right? Because I, I think that the most controversial argument I make in that piece is this idea that, you know, if there is going to be a massive climate refugee movement of human beings, uh, and some people will argue that there there won't be, that this isn't that this isn't a real thing to worry about, and and that's fine. We'll find out one way or another over the coming decades. But if you if you think about those human beings as deserving protection, my argument is that that protection in terms of, of the Western world, the, the, the privileged part of the world providing it is not a matter of charity, it's a matter of restitution. If you live in Kiribati, if you live in an island in the Pacific that's gonna go underwater, you know that you contributed and that your society contributed essentially nothing to the climate crisis that is causing this to happen. Um, meanwhile, the developed world, the global north, whatever you want to call it, thanks to a hundred years of fossil fuel consumption, has contributed overwhelmingly to this happening to your home. And so if this were a matter of pure justice, it would be a no-brainer. Of course there's an obligation. And of course obligation is the right word. Um, but I think about this again in the context of the last 20 years, the war on terror years where you had a very active form of malice and nobody was held to account and almost, you know, they're still trying to get Afghan and Iraqi interpreters into this country right. who face daily death threats. You can't even do that. In the case of very active malice that is provable, it is provable what the Bush administration did to get you into the situation. 
how if you can't if you can't address that, how are you going to address a situation where the the malice is indirect and passive? It's a malice of overconsumption and, and fossil fuel use. Um, as soon as somebody creates a legal framework for something like the term climate refugee, well, now suddenly somebody is obligated to provide protections. And so I think that's why you're going to see really, really slow progress on defining somebody whose home is destroyed this way. Because as soon as you define it, well, now you're obligated to do something about it. Um, that's going to take that's going to take a lot of activism and agitation to get to get to a place where you do what, in my mind, is clearly the right thing. You mentioned earlier that the Arab Spring was a moment when you allowed yourself to feel sort of hopeful and to believe uh, that change was possible. I wonder, and I wonder if you believe in our ability to respond appropriately to the to climate migration and the climate crisis, or if that is also something that you will not allow yourself to believe. I, I believe very firmly in hope, um, if only as a survival mechanism. Um, where that belief comes to a hard stop is when hope gets in the way of action. Um, I think there's a particular flavor of hope that feels like an opiate. Um, you know, you sort of believe you have hope and that's enough. You're, you're done for the day. Um, and I try not to subscribe to that version of hope. Um, the, the most merciful and terrifying thing simultaneously about the climate crisis is that it's never going to be too late to do something about it. Um, it is probably too late to keep the earth from warming another degree or degree and a half. A few decades from now, it's going to be too late to keep it from warming to two and a half degrees and so on and so forth. It's never going to be too late to do anything about it. And I, I try not to think of it in those terms in the kind of binary, like, do we do something? Do we do nothing because it's too late kind of, kind of way of thinking because that's destructive. I try as much as possible to think about it as, as trying at least to pay off some of the mortgage that our lifestyles have taken out on future generations' lives. I think we can do that much at least. Um, you know, the, the difficulty is that we live in this incredibly individualistic society and we are trying to get people within the context of the society to give a damn about somebody who's not been born yet. And that's a very difficult sell. And I think it's one of the reasons that I retreat into fiction because I think that fiction storytelling in general, all of it, the fundamental thing that all storytelling does is ask you to put yourself in someone else's place, to look through a different pair of eyes. And so I will never give up hope on that. I, what I'm going to do is have hope within the context of realism. It's, it's too late to stop the climate crisis from ever having happened. It's not too late to do something about it, and it never will be too late to do something about it. Barbara writes, as an aspiring writer, I look to writers who write as beautifully as this author. Among the many reasons I will buy this work is his immersive descriptions. We're talking with Omar Al-Akkad, and that work is What Strange Paradise. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Judith asks, are you able to comment on Egypt today, the direction the country is going, the economic prospects for the poor demographic? I'm um, 
I'm thinking a lot about sort of it's it's I, I try my best when I comment about Egypt to to keep in mind that it's the country of my blood and that my relationship with it, you know, almost all my personality traits subconsciously trace back to that place. Um, I think one of the things that in this part of the world uh, is is somewhat difficult to sort of uh, explain is is the extent, for example, to which um, the military is a societal force in Egypt. Um, the, the, the military is perceived in, the, in two contexts. One is that it's our, you know, brave men and women fighting against, um, traditionally it's been sort of Israel or, you know, the, the, the foreigners who are trying to undermine our great country, but it's also an employer. It, it runs domestic industry within Egypt. And so right now you have effectively a military leader who, who has taken over as president masquerading as a civilian leader. Um, and the, the, the prospect of sort of a, a, a true democracy has to pass the hurdle of not only an entire generation that has been sort of crushed by what has happened to the in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, but also this, this very sort of deep rootedness of the military as the central participant in social life. Um, these are very difficult things to do anything about. That said, I, I have immense hope in, in the new generation. Um, and I experienced this from a distance, particularly through artists. I'm thinking here of writers like um, Basma Abdelaziz, who's a, an author. She has a new book coming out uh, next month, I believe, in English. Um, she has tackled the aftermath of the Arab Spring in a way that's so direct that often the cops are going around looking for her books and taking them off shelves. Um, that there are people brave enough to do this in the context of a country that still operates torture programs and secret prisons is, is deeply inspiring for me. Um, is it going to change the country overnight? No, um, but I, I, have, I have immense faith in this generation of people trying to bring about this thing that I've been told since I was young, we don't deserve, you know, trying to bring about democracy despite our leaders telling us over and over again that we're not ready for it. Uh, you basically answered the question on my mind in terms of what of the anti-authoritarian movements that swept through the region remain alive in a meaningful way. And I'm glad to hear you referencing and giving us an example, Omar Al-Akhad. Well, I want to leave you with this uh, thought from Jessica, who writes, his writing is so beautiful and the subject is so affecting, fighting back the tears this morning. Omar Al-Akhad, can't thank you enough for being on with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, it was my pleasure. And if there's any parting thought you wanna leave us with, um, we have about 20 seconds before I have to say my goodbyes. <laughs> um, just to thank your listeners for their incredible kindness and for listening to my rambling answers, I, I deeply appreciate it. <laughs> Not at all, Omar Al-Akhad. The new novel, What Strange Paradise. You can also check out his first novel, American War. A journalist and former foreign correspondent, not war correspondent. Um, so glad to have you on today. And I also want to thank Susan Britton for producing today's segment. And Susan Britton is lead producer for Forum. Forum is also produced by Tina Lauerberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wen. Nina Sparling also produced this week. Our acting senior editor is Judy Campbell. 
Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Eng. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening to Forum, and have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.